conversation and try to figure out what the end looks like. Yeah, the very end is described there. Uh, but uh, we have a very significant amount of, uh, of teaching here regarding the end of the world. And we need to examine that because the Lord Jesus took pains to teach his disciples that very same teaching. I'm going to begin from verse 1, Matthew 24, verse 1. Our text for preaching will be verses 4 through 14. This is the first sermon of two in that same passage. I may have uh, numbered the passage a little bit differently in the second sermon, but it will be essentially verses 4 through uh, 13 next week, Lord willing, in the morning service. Matthew 24, now hear the word of our God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Beloved, all flesh is as grass, as beauty is as the flower of the field. The grass withers and its flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. This is the word that was just read to you. By God's help, it will be preached. Please be seated. One of the common complaints made against the teaching that Christianity alone is the true religion is the argument that there are so many faiths in the world. I think someone has counted uh, over 4,200 religions in the world. And who are you, you narrow-minded bigot, to think that you alone can profess the only way to heaven, the only hope of everlasting life, the only peace with God, the only friendship with God, the only forgiveness of sins? 
And so they think it is a, a very unlikely thing. Of course, if we were, uh, if this was a, a poll, if this, if this was a, a by majority vote, certainly, certainly, in the entire history of the world, Christians would be outvoted and uh, some other concept would be accepted. But the, the problem is, my friends, that we are, we are not operating under normal circumstances. We are not, the world is, is not normal. It's a fallen world. We all fell in Adam when he sinned. We all sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And we are dead in sins and trespasses, alienated from the life of God and strangers to the covenant of peace. And we are not in a position, my friends, to come before God any which, which way we want. And, and further complicated our own sinfulness and the effect of sin on our minds and on our hearts, our affections are all twisted. They, 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 they're bent. They're, they're like a bad bow, a, a, a bow that's been bent and you try to aim at the, at the target and it, the arrow flies away, you miss every time. In addition to our own misery and sin, we have an adversary whose very purpose is to frustrate, contradict, and mitigate and militate against the kingdom of God and his Christ. We have an agent, angel, who is rogue and wants to destroy himself and everything because he hates God because the image of God, his imprint, his fingerprints are on everything. And Satan can't stand that. And he's a deceiver. And he's highly skilled. And he is nonstop in his aggression of war against all creatures, but especially the ground zero of his attacks is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the object of his extreme enmity. And so, my friends, this is what we have before us in the end times. We think, well, you know, the work of redemption is accomplished at the cross. Satan, if you're in the reformed world, you say, oh, Satan is bound, he can't hurt, you know. Well, that binding still has a lot of, those iron chains that bind them, they have a lot of flex in it. I'll tell you why. Because he's still about the business of deceiving the nations, of weakening the nations, of deceiving those that come into the visible church under the, the signs of baptism, under the signs of the Lord's Supper here we have this morning. And uh, people will be making professions and they'll think, oh, they're fine with God. But then these horrendous things are happening left and right. People not getting along in the world. The world itself belching out poisonous vapors from, from volcanoes and the earth and tumult and sea from all manner of seismic difficulties, tsunamis and hurricanes and wind forces knocking buildings down. And where is the love of God in all of this? And where is the love of God in the church? 
when men grow lawless and undisciplined and they suspect one another and it's all nature, raw, tooth and claw. There seems to be very little sanctuary left. And if the foundations are destroyed, where will the righteous turn? That, my friends, is the precarious situation in which we find ourselves in the last days. And we are in the last days. This is the last epoch before the great, great change that is coming to us and to all of nature. The new heavens and the new earth. Glorified bodies through the resurrection of the dead. All that's coming. It's coming at the return of Christ. And by the way, my friends, I'll say it again. There's only one return of Christ. There's not two. He's coming for his saints. And he'll take them up in his right hand and he'll judge the, the nation on that day that will judge all peoples in righteousness. And he'll separate the sheep and the goats. On his right hand will be the blessed. On his left will be those who depart to everlasting destruction. And so we must keep the gospel and heed the warning of the writer of Hebrews where he says, be more than careful, be extra careful because deception is real. And the people of old were deceived and they were the chosen people of God in outward form, invisible, invisible sacraments and uh, emblems of God's love. They were deceived and their bodies littered littered the wilderness. The whole chapter here is about not merely knowing about the end, my friend. This chapter is about getting to the end without losing your soul. That's the purpose of studying the end time. Now we see here in the context the continued existence of the standing temple in Jerusalem. I mentioned in a previous preaching that this cannot be interpreted as a, a definitive sign of God's approval of all the Jews and especially the leaders. Now that's what it's meant to be is the ordinance. But their hearts were wicked and far from God. The disciples marveled at the beauty of this structure and they pointed out because in contrast to what Jesus is saying, that because the tenants of the vineyard had been unfaithful, and especially in their treatment of the son, the heir, and casting him out, all of this is coming down. He will, he will, he will take his armies and trample those, rich, those wretched souls, and he'll give his kingdom out to, to, to a new people who will, make, who will bring forth the fruit of it. The disciples are understanding significantly that a great change is coming on, but yet they see the emblems of God's, God's beneficence. But not everything that appears to be a sign of the, event, of the end of the world is in reality a definitive sign. It's a sign. It points to something, and it has significance, and I will mention that in the future preaching, but it's not a definitive sign of the very end. The teaching here then is this, that not everything that appears to be a sign of the end is in reality a valid sign. I think I'm, I think I've got the preposition proposition uh, stated a little bit differently uh, in the uh, in the bulletin. So I'll read it from them from there. Not everything that appears to be a sign of the end of the world is in reality a valid sign. Uh, people will be misled. They will misinterpret false signs of the end of the world in the last days. 
False signs will try or tempt their discernment and perseverance of their faith in Christ. That's the teaching. Take that home, think about that, believe that, act upon that. Let me, uh, let me substantiate that proposition with flying buttresses, as it were, in three points. The first point of the sermon is that there will be many signs falsely interpreted as the end of the world or the, or the imminent end of the world. Uh, I preached in the earlier chapter when Christ said, Whoa, I said that the imminent destruction of those Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, lawyers was at hand. There was an imminence in that threat. However, what Jesus is now saying is he's adding more, more uh, instruction and more teaching, more understanding to the woes as it applies to more groups of people than merely those scribes and Pharisees that were denounced by, I believe there were eight woes, okay? There will be many signs falsely interpreted as, as woes, as woes, because woes are an imminent judgment of God for sin. First of all, the appearance of false Christs and of false teachers, they're not signs of the very, very end. They're not signs of the very, they could, they're continuing signs, of course, and features of the last days. Now that Christ has appeared, the problem with Christ appearing is that with Christ appearing, we have many, many more antichrists. It's like, it's like a spores, a dandelion spores, they pop up in your lawn and they're just blown everywhere. Now we got not one seed, but we got 2,000 seeds. We got 2,000 dandelion weeds. Continuing signs of the last days, false Christs, false teachers. And, but you know what? These have been in the world since the beginning. You know your Bible. Uh, even uh, the Jews had false, false teachers within their, their own communion, within their own tribes of the nation, the, 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 the theonomy, um, and even apart from the church, you know your old history, Balaam, and uh, all that. So the appearance of false Christ, that's, that's not the end. That's not the very end. The collapse of the, uh, the, the Pax Romana, you know what that is? The, the Roman peace, the Roman Empire? where all the world was at peace at the coming of our Lord, the birth of our Lord. And uh, Herod ordered the ordering of the people because the census was made possible. There was a, a time of prosperity and the roads were open and vast communications were possible. This would be by the, this is because of the power of Rome and, and the way that they administered empire. The, 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 the Roman peace, the Pax Romana was something very significant. And yet, and yet, as long as that peace had been enjoyed, even by vassal states such as the Jews here in Israel uh, would have it, uh, at the dismantling, the, disarm, the, the, the collapse, the, the, uh, the collapse of that empire is not the very, very end. There will be wars, there will be rumors of wars, there will be uh, political turmoil at the very top in Rome. Rome, the, 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 you know, with the Senate and its orderliness, and it was a, a model, a, a model government in many, many ways. And yet at one season, I think in one year, they had four emperors 
four various revolutions and intrigues going on where they have four heads of state. That is a very tumultuous time. The citizens, all citizens of Rome and the empire would have been very gravely concerned. Nations and people will continue to both fall and rise. When we see nations being conquered at war, we saw that in World War I, we saw that in World War II, we're seeing it, I don't know what's gonna happen in Ukraine and in Russia today. The maps of Africa continue to change. My old globe from 30 years ago is useless when you look at continent of Africa. Nations and people will continue to rise and fall. This is not a definitive sign of the very end. The succession of empires, this is, this is the trick. If, you, if you're operating on the scriptures, you know from the prophecy of Daniel's that the, the, four, the four empires that were to secede uh, uh, the times of Daniel ends with the Roman Empire. And so you might be tempted if, you, if you're being, uh, you know, if, 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 you're, if, you're, if you're not very, very careful as a Bible student, you might say, well, you know, this is the end time. This is all that Daniel had for us. And with, and with this one going down, we don't have anything else, and so it seems like this will be the end. But the fall of the Roman Empire is not the end, and was not the end of the world. And some may argue that the Roman Empire still exists. I don't think so. Very few will speak Latin anyway. There will be many false signs interpreted. The appearance of false Christ, false teachers, collapse of the Pax Romana. That's not, that's not a sign of the very end. Repeated and violent disturbances in the physical realm. Are they, are they to be banked on as this is it? Christ is coming. Now what this we have here are reminders to every man of the passing of this world. This, past, this world will not exist in this form forever. It will be uh, purged. It will, it will be purified. Uh, Man, of course, will be glorified in the resurrection. Those, uh, those who go on to everlasting life will bear the image of Christ. Those uh, that are at the left hand to everlasting shame will have their resurrection bodies, uh, but uh, this resurrection body will be uh, corrupted of their sin, their own personal sin, which God doesn't need to impute to them because it's their own. And whatever pains of conscience they have at the judgment, which is a spiritual judgment, they will, those, those spiritual judgments, those pangs and terrors of conscience in hell are, will fully be compatible with the pains, their bodily pains. Bodily pains. What do we mean by bodily pains? That means your, 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 no, your knees will remind you of where you walked where you shouldn't have walked. Your eyes will burn because you looked at things you shouldn't have walked. Your tongue will be parched because of all the corruption that you spoke. Your ears will burn, etc. Just go through. Your body will suffer because you presented it as an instrument of sin. But even nature itself is groaning because in man's fall into sin, all creation, not only, I'm not talking about the planet Earth. You know, we watched The Martian the other night over uh, in, our, in our house. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're on Mars and, uh, and if you trip and fall, you're going to die. 
death does not only reign on earth. Uh, the whole cosmos is implicated. The furthest galaxy is implicated because somehow, I don't know how, man is amazingly, amazingly integral to the, to the vast, the vast purposes of God are all seated in his creature man, the crown glory of his creation. Read about that in Psalm 8. I can back up and read it in Genesis 1 and 2 as well. But that nature was subjected to shame, to entropy, as it's called in the Greek. And they are, and, and, and all the animals feel it. They, they, there's terror in their eyes when they see a man, unless they are domesticated. We, you know, we have that, we have that as well. But all of these disturbances, violence, many, many result in death and great injury. They're all reminders of the whole world, the passing of this world in this present form. And, in the, uh, and, and just in, in recorded history, the more recent history, we have nations losing their wits over solar eclipses. I, I mean, even my, my forefathers, uh, according to the flesh of the Spaniards, took advantage of solar eclipses in Central America, and they, they deceived uh, many of the, of the native peoples there, the indigent, the indigent peoples, uh, of some kind of strange power because they had astronomy and they could predict the sun's eclipse. Solar eclipses is not the end of the age, uh, but it will surely be a fright to people because darkness is, well, darkness uh, speaks to a great amount of terror, believe it or not. Halley's Comet in the 19th century made a sensation. People looked at the skies. But even in, as close as my, father, my grandfather's generation in Cuba, people saw Halley's Comet. They were very, very concerned that this was a sign of the end. Why am I telling you this? Because of my friends, and there's nothing new under the sun, and if it happened once again in a very significant way, you know, if, if, if somebody can get on the radio and broadcast uh, War of the Worlds, was that the name of it? The planets, War of the Planets? I don't know what it was, but anyway, the end of the world, and people believe it, you know that that is possible again. We forget. We, history <laughs> does indeed teach us nothing. All right. Because we're not learning. Halley's Comet, Planetary alignments, oh, I, I guess that was less than 10 years ago. How all the planets are going to align. Well, yeah, that's the mathematical nature of their orbitals. Oh, no, but this means something. What does it mean? Uh, it's the beginning of the end of the age? No. Climate change, that's, that's my favorite now. Uh, I was driving with my favorite Uber driver the other day, and he, told, and he reminded me, he says, you know, Pastor Vega, we are... <laughs> We are, at this moment, experiencing an ice age. I <laughs> just fell out of the Uber car. Climate change. Is, is this, is this, it? Are we, is this the, a sign of the very end? No. These have been in the world, along with false prophets, false Christs, from the beginning. There will be many signs falsely interpreted. Sermon point number two. False signs are but the beginning of woes. They, they, are, they are as birth pangs to a, a woman that is about to give birth. She is, no, she is full. She is pregnant. She is nearing her term. But they're intermittent. They come and go. That's the nature of the case. And even these false signs, however, are 
are significant reminders under God's providence that we ought to be paying attention, that we dwell in no certain stable uh, city. We have no certain foundation, no firm foundation. Our city is the city of God, Zion, that is heavenly. We are pilgrims in this place. This is not a settled place. Abraham was looking to a, a vaster inheritance than the Canaan land that was, that was uh, indicated to him. He saw that with eyes of faith, spiritual eyes, and that's what we need. But we need to interpret these signs as significant under God's providence because these signs, my friends, are a means to the end. They're not the encroachment of the end. They're not announcing the very end, but they are a means to the end. That is to say that as the birth pangs and the contractions are certainly a means uh, to enable that child to leave its mother's womb. Again, it's here in our, in our very text. Uh, these are but the beginning of the birth pangs, but the same thing will be found in Mark chapter 13, verse 8, where it says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pangs. And again, in Mark, it's towards the end of that gospel as well. These are reminders of the awful conclusion of the present age. I, I want to repeat that because I want to, I'm about to read something to you that is uh, a bit of history written by Josephus that marked the end of the Jewish dispensation. And it surely was an awful conclusion of the history of that covenanted people. Okay? They are, remind, they are reminders, these signs. Uh, <clears throat> even the false signs are reminders of the awful conclusion, confusion, and deception that is the favorite the favorite ploy of, of Satan, the destroyer. These signs then also foreshadow, they anticipate, they foreshadow the end of the age, especially, my friends, the temple. Now, this is, a, this is a tricky place because in terms of how we understand this passage, we can understand it historically, and this is not apocalyptic literature quite because it's still historic, the, the, the disciples are merely saying, look at the temple, look at these precious stones. But my friends, the temple, as I've uh, preached before, is not just an ordinary physical structure. The temple itself is a living system, that, a living sign, a symbol that needs to be interpreted at all times as that. Okay, So the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem take on uh, quite a bit of the flavor of the wrap-up of the end of the age. Quite a bit. Because, as I said, the temple is a symbol not only of the whole of the cosmos, with God dwelling in the midst of all his creatures, but it is also an emblem of the beginning where man was with God in the, the garden. And so it represents both paradise and, uh, and paradise regained. The temple does. The promise of paradise regained. But the destruction of the temple, let me read to you from Josephus. I won't quote. This is not an academic lecture, so I'm not going to quote a whole lot. Um, this is from Josephus, but it was it's it, sprinkled here and there in books four through six of his history of the Jewish war. Josephus, the historian, a Roman, uh, a Roman and an ex-combatant and an eyewitness of the destruction of Jerusalem and an and an able historian. Now, we can't take his word as uh, this is not gospel here. This is not. This is not sacred literature, what I'm going to read, but we have to take his, 
We have to take his witness here, I think, seriously. That building that is speaking of the Temple of Jerusalem, God long ago had sentenced to the flames. But now in the revolution of the time periods, the fateful day had arrived, the 10th of the month of Lowe's. Lowe's was the Roman, on the Roman calendar. The 10th of the month of Lowe's was the very day in which previously it had been burned by the king of Babylon. One of the soldiers, neither awaiting orders nor filled with the horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some natural impulse or supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and hoisted up one by one one of his fellow soldiers and flung the fiery missile through a golden window. And when the flame arose, a scream as poignant as the tragedy went up from the Jews, now that the object which before they had guarded so closely was going to ruin. And while the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests were alike massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and sanctuary to be razed to the ground, except only the highest towers, Phazael, Hippaeus, and Marianan, and that part of the wall that enclosed the city on the west. And that wall is still extant today. You can see that in the picture of Jerusalem. Josephus is, is true and accurate here. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of the end of the age, the terror that will come upon, upon all age, the darkness. It's, it's, it's foreshadowing the cutting off of the ancient people of, of God, the Jews. The, they were cut off from the covenants of life. And it is a biblical foreshadows of the ends. And these are examples, these are warnings to the nations that now have the Bible, the completed word of God, going forth out of Jerusalem after Pentecost. These are warnings to the church, which every Christian needs to heed. As Paul addresses the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, a lot of people don't understand, well, why would Paul be reminding Christ reminded Christians of the threat of extinction, annihilation, and discipline when we're all saved eternally? Yeah, we're all saved eternally, but not all of us are saved. That's the problem. The problem is that some of us have a presumptive faith and we presume that we're Christians, but we're not. And our lives show differently. There's no love of God. There's hardly any care for neighbor. We do the civil things to be able to avoid jail. But God knows our hearts. And we need to square with him and we need to love the Lord with a love incorruptible. And those are the ones who are awaiting God and who will be blessed at his second coming. Those are the Christians that will survive the deception. The end will see then, the end, the true end will see what? An increase in these signs, in, in their recurrence, in their magnitude, and in their concurrence. 
and as such, they will become very significant. You say, well, when will these things occur? Ah, there, no, nothing here says about that. It just says, be watchful, be watchful. There are your currents of all these things, famines, wars, tumults, empires, crashing, the earth quaking, the seas roaring, men detesting one another, the whole church not being able to get hit you. All the COVID madness multiplied to an exponent. All right. The end we'll see an increase in all of that. Mark 13 again. Birth pangs, but then there'll be a delivery of the baby. And that's the new age. That's the new one that's being born. The third and final point of the sermon is this, that you must take care. You must take care that you remain unshakable, that you remain firm, that you're standing, that you are as a pillar grounded and well-situated in the temple of God, that you are unmovable. Don't be shaken from your steadfastness. That is to say, if you have steadfastness, do you, do you know what steadfastness is? What does a steadfast Christian look like? What is his daily routine in prayer before God and reading the scriptures? What, what is his daily routine in, in, in checking himself against sin and sins of omission? Lost opportunities. How we fail to show love to our neighbors and by our, our, our tongues, how we, how, we, how we hurt one another. All these things are extremely important. Don't be shaken from your steadfastness. Don't be, don't be shaken with so many so-called Christians are lawless. They have no regard for the Ten Commandments. In fact, they really get angry when you mention the moral laws if you're trying to make them a Jew. I'm not trying to get you circumcised. I'm trying to get, let you know that this is the way that every Christian should walk, especially Commandments 2 and 4. If you're not familiar with the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and we preach here at night, we worship God at night, we're going through a series on Exodus that's extremely important that we understand God's teaching to us in the moral law. Opposition to the moral law, Christians becomes lawless. Well, then it's a, it, it's a stumbling block, says Matthew 18, especially to the children. When Christians don't even greet one another in, this, in the church, when, when, when elders don't pray for the people, they don't even know the names of their children. Opposition to God's laws. And, of course, opposition to the kingdom through persecution, either formal, uh, you know, formal uh, persecutions at the hands of emperors and governments or social persecution, marginalization, gaslighting, etc. You are to then grow in discernment. You are not to be childish in your understanding. Some things are simple, but this is not simple. This is not a simple teaching. This is a complicated teaching. You are to not to remain a child. You are to grow up. You are a soldier, not a plastic one. You're armed to the teeth if you're a Christian. Deception is deadly. And you do know that the poison, the poison dart kills. And you are to fear God and order your, uh, your, your life uh, accordingly. Be watchful. Surely be watchful. 
This is why it's written that we need to be watchful. But avoid speculation, especially the, the certainty of date testing or date setting regarding the end. And over minute, over in, uh, intricate detail as to all the particular parts. You know, you can be right in all those things and still be, you, you can still be condemned. But you can be wrong in all those things and still be saved because they have not, it is not an article of faith, my friends. I don't know how fundamentalism, uh, yeah, I'm against fundamentalism. I think it's, I think it's a severe redaction, a severe redaction of this book that we're reading. Five, five lonely articles. You think that's going to save anybody? It, you're, no, you're in hardly any better shape if you know the accurate map of the end times than if you don't. You're safe when you're believing and trusting in Christ for all, his righteousness. You're repenting from your sin according to the moral law, which has not been abolished, but have completely upheld. And you are diligent in the use of the, of the sacraments and the ordinances, preaching, prayer, repentance unto life, acts of mercy, church attendance. All right. There's going to be more teaching forthcoming on this chapter. Actually, I have two more sermons beyond this one. So if you have questions, hang there. I, mean, wait, I have not yet begun to, to uh, close this chapter, even uh, up to the verse uh, 14. My friends, we need to persevere. Faith, repentance, diligent use of the outward means of grace to the very end. Revelation 2.26. What, what is the message to the church there in, in the Asia Minor? The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. Now, this one I will give authority over the nations. In other words, this one overcomes the world, and this one is saved. To summarize, not everything that appears to be a sign of the end of the world is a, is a valid sign. Many such signs will be misinterpreted in the last days, and these false signs will test your discernment and perseverance in the faith. And so the naive, the, uh, the uninstructed and the underinstructed are in jeopardy of deception. And that, is not, and that is not a casting away of Calvinism. My friends, know that Christ teaches an end <clears throat> to the Jewish dispensation. It was not an accident what happened. Jesus has predicted it. The Old Testament prophets predicted it. He, he, he is here dealing with the end of the Jewish dispensation discreetly, and some of these verses will apply to that. And he's also teaching... Uh, as the end of the world, because there, there, there are strictly speaking analogies, similarities, and that by design. The temple symbolized something, and that symbolized the cosmos, God dwelling, and not dwelling with mankind. Okay? So you know that, that both of these things are being taught to you here. Continue to seek the Lord in the ordinary means of grace. We're talking about very spectacular things here. But ordinances are ordinary. They're just normal things that you enjoin day by day in your faithfulness. And it reminds me of, of the, the reading in the Psalms. Dwell in the land and, and cultivate faithfulness. That, that's how you serve God. You wait upon the Lord and he will renew your strength. 
Those who wait on the Lord will never be, will never be ashamed. The, 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 the virgins, the ten virgins, five were wise. They were waiting on the Lord. Their, their eyes were open. They were ready. They had oil in their lamps. We'll get it that in the 25th chapter. But seek him in the ordinary means of grace, especially in the assembled, especially on the assembled uh, gathering of the saints on the Lord's day, which you must do according to the fourth commandment. Keep in mind, as I said before, the more ornate the eschatology, the greater likelihood of error. Complex mechanical designs have a higher failure rate than simple ones. Engineers know that. Keep it simple, stupid. The more mechanisms, you might impress somebody in the patent office, but surely that machine will fail more often in the field. Jesus' details to the end are sparse because he doesn't want to he doesn't want to fill your head with maps and diagrams. He's teaching is sparse because he wants to engender faith and trust in his person because he is leading you. This is not a secret knowledge. This is a practical knowledge of who the Lord is, the faithful shepherd of his church. This is, this is the knowledge of the Holy One who is taking charge of your soul and he's your keeper. The Lord is your shade in your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day and the moon neither by night. He will keep your feet from stumbling. There's nothing new under the sun here. Trust in the Lord and wait for his salvation. Though the earth should fail, though the mountains quake, though the seas roar, and yet there remains a city, the eternal city of the dwelling God. God is in the midst of her. She will not be shaken. Do you understand these things? Do you understand that I'm quoting the Psalms? No secret knowledge here. Sing the Psalms. Especially the dispensationalists don't know what to do with these Psalms. They're crying out loud. You talk about confusing the, the Jew and the, and the Christian. They say, the Christian is, my friends, in that regard, a consummate Jew. Because Christ the head is the consummate Jew. And we're in Christ. Especially avoid speculation regarding the political nation of Israel today. Everyone loves to hear about the destruction of the temple. Everyone wants to build a, a friends. You know, they're, they're sending a lot of money, big money. Big money to resurrect, to buy materials, ton, limb, uh, ton, uh, stones and timber and all kinds of precious metals to rebuild a third Jewish temple, which of course is blasphemous. They should be building the temple in Christ and giving that all that huge sum of money to missions. And that's the temple that's going up. That is to say, the building which God inhabits in Christ and the saints. But as for political Israel, why don't we just leave that to the ambassadors, the ambassador row outside of Washington, D.C. That's none of our business. The gospel, my friends, is for all nations. If the Jews to be saved, he's to bow the knee, bend the knee to, to Christ. He's to be engrafted into that same root that's, that, that Abraham came from. And it's the root and stock of, of, of Jesse. That is to say, Christ, he must, the Jew must repent, and you here who hear this gospel must repent. They must, you must believe and come to Jesus, be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And there is no other name given under the, under the heavens whereby a man may be saved. 
The gospel is for all nations, all peoples, including the Jew. And that, my friends, gospel is before us in terms of tangible elements. We preach the gospel. You receive it by faith and the words that you hear, but you also sense the gospel. You touch the gospel. You taste the gospel. And this is the opportunity we have at the Lord's table. All who are friends of Christ, who have made public profession of him before Christ's ambassadors, that is to say, a properly ordained ministry, who have been baptized and made profession like this are welcome. If you're here and you're not baptized, you've not made profession, let's wait. In a sense, in a sense, you are not receiving anything at this table. You have not already received in the preaching by faith. All that I give you here is Christ and Him crucified. All that you have here is Christ and Him crucified. That's all you get. That's all you need. Will the elders please come forward? This is a sacrament, that is to say, it's an ordinance, a holy ordinance. It's instituted by Christ for the good of his people. And he wants us to keep this ordinance unto the very last. Because this is a table that represents friendship with God, uh, communion, fellowship, a free and easy peace with God. No one sits in a table with enemies, with knives here on the table, you know. You put all that away. It's also the table that we will all enjoy in the great bridegroom's feast in the end. And my friends, I think, I really do think that uh, when we see Christ, one day we'll see some things that are very marvelous and new, and then we'll see some things that are, are quite familiar. And we'll, we'll understand that we really have sat with Christ before, that he's been with us at table all along. And that's a very comforting thought, to have something so familiar in heaven as a table of friends. Here's the, the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The Lord would save us. Two things to discern. This is not snack time in the church. This is a holy sacrament and is set apart by Christ through prayer and his, and his word. The second thing, though, is if you've led a riotous life, if you are lawless this week, you're not worthy to even worship today, much less to receive this supper unless you repent. Now, you might still re resolve to repent. And if you know the gospel, remember that Christ died for such sinners as you and pledged to turn, pledge a new life, pledge to return to him in love. And then be diligent going forward in all the means of his grace. And this table then is still open for you. The Lord weighs hearts. He will judge the wicked at this table mightily. He will discipline the sons, not to condemn them, but to remind them of their duties and to do better the next time. Let's pray that the Lord consecrate these elements. Lord, these, this bread and this wine... Uh, very common, very common elements. But today, by your blessing, they are special. They are holy. They are set apart by your word and by your instruction. And we know, Lord, that by this, by this simple positive law in obeying, that we will have your pleasure. So take pleasure, Lord, in meeting with us at this table. And may our souls... Rejoice at the goodness of our God who gives Christ fully, body and blood, all the life of the Savior is ours. And we bless you for such a gift. Consecrate the, blood, the, the bread and the blood, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.
At his last night on earth, the Lord took bread, seated with his disciples in the upper room. He took the bread and he broke the bread. And he said, this bread is my body and it's broken for you. Now you remember this as often as you eat. 